Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I am Ashley Lowe Blassingame. I am your host. I have a cold, so I'm a little punchy, but uh, that probably doesn't surprise you. Anywho, we have a guest today, special guest, bonus episode. What, what? What, what? Bonus episode. What, what? What, what? Okay. Anyway, enough about my bonus episode. We have Mark Lamplew Jr. Mark Lamplew is a fourth generation firefighter and former captain with the Lower Chichester, Pennsylvania Fire Company. He is an advocate for the behavioral and mental health of firefighters and other first responders, has been involved in the creation of several responder-specific treatment programs, and is recognized by the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress. Lamplew hosts his own talk show called Firefighter Wellness Radio and has published dozens of articles on responder wellness topics, he can be reached at mark at 360wellness.org. This episode is near and dear to our hearts at Lion Rock. We have been working hard on a first responder program, and we're so excited to have Mark as our expert in guiding us to creating first responder-specific treatment options that address the daily traumas that our first responders deal with. So we are so grateful to Mark for all his expertise and hope you enjoyed this informative bonus episode. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on here. You've been doing a lot of work with Lion Rock in the first responder space, and we are just so grateful for your expertise. What is? Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? You're so involved in recovery in the first responder world. What is that about? So I got, I went to treatment myself um, February 2nd, 2010. And prior to that, I grew up in a firefighting, I guess you can say, life or I'm a fourth-generation firefighter, so my father still an active president. I was a captain. Uh, my grandfather was a chief. Uh, my great-grandfather, which they have an award that they give out to somebody every year named after him. Oh, my um, gosh. So it's like 90 years of history with the same fire department. So as a kid growing up, I just that was my life. It you was could never... be anything you wanted to be as long as it was a firefighter? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I just grew up there. Everybody I knew was from the fire department, uh, all family, friends, parties, you know, I go to the fire, you know, station with my grandfather. We all lived within two or three blocks from the fire and my, my dad still does. So when I go back to Pennsylvania, you know, I still have a key to the door. I go hang out and, you know, our pictures are on the walls and I never left. So it was just, just a natural for me to, to do that. And I did it well. And, so, How old were you when you started the journey to become a firefighter professionally? So it's uh, you, you can be what's called a junior firefighter. Okay. Um, at Lower Chai, it was, uh, was 16, but the year that I turned 15, they had a bylaws change just so I could be a member at 15. Wow. Uh, so, 
you're not allowed to go into any burning buildings or anything like that right. until you're 18. But you can go on calls and help outside and, you know, do the, the fire schools and stuff like that. As soon as you turn 18, then you can be active. And as long as you have your uh, fire schools, you can do the interior stuff and all that. And this was in Pennsylvania. Where in Pennsylvania? Uh, Delaware County, Pennsylvania, which is just south of Philadelphia. Okay. So so this is like, you know, part of your early life, you're going on calls, you're, you know, I mean, this is just everything to you. They're probably, you probably didn't consider anything else. No. And I, uh, you know, you can look at all my pictures as a kid, even at 10 years old in parades in a uniform and, mm-hmm. and stuff. I, you know, even I have a picture of my grandfather when he's a twin of him at six, six, four or five years old in, in a fire uniform in front of an old fire truck him and his twin brother, you know, back in 1938 or something like that. I just did a a first responder newspapers, just did a whole story on my family and myself, you know, just talking about that. That's going to be out in a couple months. So today, you know, you, um, you have nine years of recovery and you're very active in the first responder recovery space. That's particular, you know, getting first responders help. What, Obviously, that road took you to places that you didn't want to be. What happened? How did you go from, you know, this family tradition of of being part of the firefighting crew to using to the point where you needed treatment? So I I always tell people there's a lot of, like, first responders have issues with PTSD and a lot of their drinking or drug use uh, stems from... Uh, self-medicating to deal with those symptoms. Yeah. And I always tell people for me, I don't know that I wouldn't matter what I was. Right. You know, I, I just like partying and I like drinking, you know, and, and ever since I was a kid and, you know, from first drink, you know, it was, had to be something that was all the time. When I turned 21, it was going out to the bars. Now it was a little bit easier at the fire department because there was a bar right in the firehouse, you know, so we would hang out there after events and stuff like that. And, you know, you had your kegs and you would drink and, you know, guys could go home and I didn't want to, you know, it's just how I was. And uh, so everything kind of came to head. I guess it was uh, 2010 where I started to, I just was out of control and uh, we had a working house fire and I was on the, the nozzle, they call it, or the, you know, the hose and I didn't have my helmet clipped the way it should be. Uh, we went down the steps to go into the kitchen, which was on fire, it was a, you know, and it was a working fire, you know. And I fell down the steps. My helmet flew off and, oh, no. you know, could have been a serious, serious, you know, problem. And uh, we got done. I we kind of I kind of laughed it off like it was no big deal. And we got back to the station and, uh, you know, they had my dad there and, bunch of other guys in the chief's office and basically said like you know you got to get you know get help and so that's what I did and uh that wasn't my first time uh I had been to treatment in the past through a marriage and stuff like that but this was a time that it was different for me because um I guess it, it it was time I think I was ready and I always tell people I know they say in recovery you can never say it's going to be your last time or you don't know when it's going to be the end but something about that time yeah. felt different than any other time before where I kind of like had the motivation, I guess, that yeah. I didn't want to continue living the way I was. And I just kept that motivation through, you know, right. the, uh, the institutions and sober living and stuff like that. So when I got about a year and a half sober, I um, 
I started working for a treatment center and, you know, I, I in admissions and I know a lot of firefighters that need help. And uh, I would sit there on 4 to 12 and I would just call fire stations and just see what they were doing, you know, for guys that needed help and stuff like that. And that's just kind of how what led me to, you know, where I'm at now. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's been. What did your drinking look like? What is the, you know, I don't, I feel like drinking while being a firefighter might look or, or being a first responder, you know, in a lot of places they don't have bars or kegs in the fire, you know, in, in, mm. in rather in the workplace, you know, it sounds to me like the first responder culture, particularly of firefighters, but the first responder culture is different than a lot of workplaces. And what did that look like for you? How did that help or hurt your progression? And what were some of the times where, you, you know, some of the wreckage started to build up? Well, I would say my, my issue was prescription drugs. That was what kind of always brought me to my knees. Was uh, How did you find prescription, prescription drugs? Just get, you know, through doctors, getting hurt and getting prescribed them and then not, you know, continuing to take them when I shouldn't have been. And then it became daily and, uh, but drinking too, I, you know, I drank every day, but I, I kind of think that if I didn't ever start prescription drugs, I probably wouldn't be in recovery right now. And I would stop using prescription drugs and be fine. And then I would, for whatever reason, I couldn't grasp the concept that if you don't do prescription drugs, you can't drink either. And I right. would always go back to drinking. That would be the thing that took me back to everything else. Yeah, I relate to that a lot. Years to kind of figure yeah. out, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. because I always wanted to be able to drink like everybody else. It's totally. just, I just couldn't, you know, I grew up, you know, you know, my parent, my father drank and all the guys at the firehouse drank and I just wanted to be able to drink, you know, like yeah. that. And, but, you know, I had to finally realize that, you know, that first one takes back to everything else, you know, so. Yeah, that's a hard lesson to to swallow. I, re- I I relate to that where it was like I could admit that I had a drug problem, mm-hmm. but then coming back to that, you know, when you have a drug problem, when you have prescription pills, whatever it is, you're very focused on that. So there is drinking involved in it every day, but you're so focused on the, the pills or the drugs or whatever it is that the drinking in comparison doesn't feel like a problem. But then you take the pills and the drugs away and you realize... <laughs> Well, maybe the drink, you know, is is excessive, but in when it's held up next to your drugs, it doesn't look as you know as right. crazy. So you did you have like so part of the um, you said you got hurt and and that started the prescription. So did was there an accident, an incident? What, what was the first time you took those prescriptions? Do you even remember? Not particularly off the top of my head. I can't. Okay. Remember, you know, nothing like major. You know, yeah, just you know my having back pain or something, went to the doctor and they said, here, take these, you know, or were they opioids? Yeah. Yeah. So I have some friends who are firefighters and actually that are sober. And something we talk about is that they respond to a lot of calls that are drug related, um, you know, domestic violence and drugs or, or just drugs or whatever it is. And that they see a lot of people, particularly nowadays, on opioids and um, have the desire to talk to them about it. Um, but they also see their colleagues judging the people who are on, op- you know, who are struggling with these things. And so the dialogue, particularly when they don't know the other firefighters sober, is like, 
derogative, you know, towards these people. And I would imagine that if I have a pill problem and I'm trying to come to terms with that, but I'm still working, I'm still functional. And then I go into a home and I see what a very uh, deep, you know, advanced opiate problem looks like. And my firefighter friends are saying derogatory things about it, that would make it a lot harder to come to that, to admit that I'm one of those people or to feel that. Is that relatable at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they do, especially now. Like when I was in my early 20s or going into even 2010, I don't think there was the overdoses that there are now for whatever reason. It's just been it's like overdoses on steroids for whatever reason, but I don't recall them being that bad uh, when I was. But you know, they get tired. I mean, you know, they're responding to all these incidences all the time. I would say, you know, 80% of everything that they respond to is alcohol or drug related in some, some form or another, whether it's vehicle accidents or, right. you know, even house fires. I mean, I, I yeah. went to a cup fatality where the mother, uh, two days after Christmas fell asleep with a cigarette, uh, drunk because she got in a fight with her husband and killed herself and her three-year-old kid, you know? Uh, yeah. And that was alcohol related. That probably would have never happened if if she didn't get drunk, you know. So they, it, it. I don't think it's it's that. Um, I guess that stoned hearted attitude because you're you're so involved with it every day, and it's right. You know. So, but so yeah. Do you, it, do you feel like, gosh, I don't, <laughs> I'm not them. I mean, is that is it like a separation thing? Um, yeah, I it, think everybody kind of compares themselves to the. You know, I'm not the guy on the corner. You know, with right. the needle. Uh, so right. I'm not as bad, you know, and I know a lot of guys like that, that get hurt and some not until their late fifties that never had problems ever, you know, and they get hurt on a serious accident and then they get prescribed uh, prescription drugs and now they're addicted and they're six months later, you know, losing her job or, or what have you, you know, and I know cops like that too. Do you have, um, stories of kind of when things were on their way down um, when you were an active duty firefighter and how drugs and alcohol, what that looked like on the job? Well, there was a few times, you know, that I was in positions with myself and others where I shouldn't have been because of being under the influence or stuff like that. There was, when I was 23 years old, I was under the influence and I totaled my car in the town that I was a firefighter and they had to cut me out of my own, you know, car and, and stuff like that. Not, not to mention, you know, the embarrassment of that. But I think a lot of the reason why it probably went so long for me was because I was so involved in the community with the fire department and the police department. They all knew me. I probably got away with things a little bit more than others because of who I was. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the so. family. What was it like getting sober as a firefighter in the sense that you had seen and dealt with, you know, there, there, of course, you know, I I feel the same way. I would have, no matter what had happened, I think that I would have ended up with drugs and alcohol being a problem. But of course, there are things along the way that make it worse and, and we're attracted to different things. When you're a first responder, you are exposed every single day to traumatic events. And getting sober, how did, you know, if you looked around and you saw other people who were not coming from, you know, they were accountants or they were coming from a much less traumatic background. What do you think the difference was um, with the difficulty between you getting sober and someone who's a first responder? I mean, for myself, I don't think that it was much. I didn't go to a fancy treatment center when I mm-hmm. went, you know, I went to 
an institution um, for 14 days, and then I went to like a it was like a state program for 22 days, and I shared a room with a, a guy that went to prison that just got out of prison for two years and as schizophrenic, you know, for 22 days, and then I came to Florida for sober living. I, I just think at the time it wouldn't matter where I went. I can see though how that would be hesitant for first responders to want to go into treatment or get help because of the stuff that they do or the job that they do because of the position that they're in and, and how that would negate them from wanting to get help. So, but for me, I, it just really didn't matter. <laughs> I, was, I didn't really much have a choice. I, right. you know, I was institutionalized and I was going wherever they told me. Right. And, uh, you know, it, that's just the way it was. Now, I think I have a little bit of a, uh, I don't want to say, um, not compassionate, but um, a harder sense of, I don't know, uh, sympathy, I guess, because I'm so used to seeing stuff that part of dealing with that is dark humor with the eyes right, and stuff right. like that. So, you know, um, so, and I, I'm also not the, I think first responders be, need to be dealt with more in a, you know, a told way because they do kind of think they're entitled a little bit. So that can tell me more about that. Tell me why do well, they think they're entitled? And because they're they're serving the community. They're already look most of the time are uh, looked up on by people. Right. Uh, they get treated differently because of their positions, and they think their job is different. And it is uh, right, right. for the it most is. sense. But I think some of that attitude is also detrimental for them to get help because they don't accept. You know, oh, he doesn't. He wasn't a first responder. He doesn't know. You know, what right. through or stuff like that, and. You're not going to go everywhere you go in the country. There's not going to be someone that may know or have been there. You right. Know? So you're going to have to take the help that you can get if you can't get, you know, the the guys that may know, have experience of working with first responders and stuff like that. Right. Now I think it's kind of getting more out there and there's more programs uh, coming available. But 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yeah. You, you know, had to take what of, you could get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I was I was the literal first responder, like first person to respond to a child drowning in a pool backyard, my neighbor, and first person to perform CPR and 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 wait until the uh, the paid first responders arrived. And I can tell you that that one incident, you know, it it had an effect. It really did. It really had an effect. And I would think that if you did that day in and day out, that that would change how you feel about yourself, how you feel about other people. And it would also put you almost in the category of the veterans where people, you know, you see the people's darkest moments every single day. And I would think that that would be hard to understand if you're not someone who's been through that, not to say that they couldn't help you, but that it would make a huge difference to be able to talk to someone who had also been at hundreds of people's, if not thousands of people's darkest moments day in, day out. And how do you have a positive, uplifting outlook on life when, you know, I mean, I think of all, you know, for me, firefighters seem to be much more heroic. They're they're lauded as much more heroic, whereas like police officers, you know, from from my conversations with them, it's kind of you know, it's both, right? It's you're you're in many cases you're the bad guy, right? Um, even though you're showing up to respond to help, and so that would be a complicated feeling too. 
yeah, everybody loves firefighters, right. uh, cops, you know, even if you don't do anything wrong, you're, you get right. from the behind. Right. Uh, right. And today it's even worse for them. But, you know, I, I can remember every fatality I've ever been on, you know, so the probably does it have an effect? Sure. There's things that I do in my everyday life that I do differently because of those things. Like that what? I, like driving down the road, you know, I won't drive behind tow trucks because of an incident with a, a tow truck that happened and somebody got killed. You know, just certain things like yeah. that, you know. Is that PTSD? No, but it's just, it's made me more, I guess, aware of my surroundings yeah. and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, as we, you know, Lion Rock has created a first responder program and, and brought in some first responders as, you know, specialists to deal with this. And it's really interesting to hear the hurdles that people have to go through to try to get help in this space. And also to think about, I got an email from a woman who she worked for the uh, the head of the morgue. What, what's the uh, medical examiner? She oh, worked yeah. for the medical, the, the medical examiner's office and would do autopsy, like investigative autopsies and show up to the crime scenes and do. And so she talked about, you know, that she's a first responder. And there's all the, there was all these positions that have come through like, oh yeah, that is, you know, the person answering the phone. I mean, I can't even, the person answering, answering 911 would, I mean, that sounds terrifying yeah, to me. Yeah. yeah. The dispatchers, yeah. And they're you know, kind of helpless in a sense because they got to hear all the stuff on the phone. Exactly. And they can't do anything, oh, you know. I mean that, that to me, you know, that is just, even though you can't see it, I mean, it's almost you're imagining. So all these different types of first responders and how many people we, you know, we look to, to help us and who are exposed to this kind of stuff and where the culture um, is not one of talking about your feelings a lot either. No, and, and a lot of the mentality too is if you seek help, you know, you don't belong on the job or what have you. Now that's changing a little bit, but there are still people that yeah. believe that, you know, wholeheartedly. Right. Like, you know, if you can't handle it, you shouldn't be here, uh, deal, you know, and it's, I don't know that you'll ever change some of those people, but I, I had, you know, the corrections officers or they oh, have yeah. a really high rate. Yeah, because you know, they're essentially in prison every day. Right, you know? right. Yeah, they get to go home, but and there's all kinds of stuff that happens there. And you, you work with all kinds of first responders. Yeah, yeah. Now all the stuff that I do, kind of so slowly in kind of outreaching with first responders, it was more firefighters with me because that's my background. So right. I started writing for fire engineering on health and wellness stuff. I do a podcast for them, uh, firefighter wellness radio. Um, I serve on some nonprofits, you know, that are helplines or resources yeah. for first responders. Uh, so that has slowly over the years, I have been building up, uh, you know, this network, uh, yeah. you know, by no fault, really. It wasn't really a plan. It just yeah. kind of happened that way. Uh, but I like doing it, you know, so and I know there are people that need the help. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. 
And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. What are some of the big topics that you talk about on your podcast, like big things that apply to first responders that you really like to, to um, you know, hit hard and talk about in terms of wellness and recovery? Yeah, so usually what I try to do on the podcast, it's live, and it's like once every six weeks, and they, since it goes out on fire engineering, it doesn't reach a lot of people. But the, yeah. the downfall of that is you only get an episode every six weeks. Right. I wish I, you know, I did a little bit more, but I try to bring on resources of different services that are available to firefighters so they know places to get help. Uh, so my last episode, I had a wife of a firefighter that committed suicide last January, uh, and he had got sober. Uh, he went to treatment in September of 2018, and then he was sober like 122 days. He relapsed and committed suicide in January. Uh, so I had his wife on because she just, you know, uh, obviously uh, didn't see any, didn't recognize. He wasn't even suicidal, like ever, she, you know, she said. So, um, what do you think? What did, she, what was, was there anything really surprising about what she said or something that stuck out to you? No, I just, I think that uh, what I, the takeaway from that situation to me was he went back to work and there wasn't, he went, he went to treatment residential, he went back and he had no follow-up care. You know, yeah. he went back to the job, he went right back to what he did every day, the stressful uh, work, and he hadn't, he was going to meetings, but meetings are different than, out, you know, intensive outpatient, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, which he should have been probably doing, and yeah. the department should have been, you know, set that up for him or, or what have you, and, and they just dropped the ball. And they were, from what I understand, told, but they, they didn't do it. So he relapsed. He probably felt guilty about it. He, you know, and uh, for whatever reason, he decided to take his life. But that happens a lot. Uh, lots of, uh, for whatever reason, first responders are committing suicide for a lot of those reasons because they don't know how to deal with the, the stress and. They don't have an outlet or know of anything, and I, I assume a lot of it has to do with uh, a lot of net loser jobs because, you know, when you're an accountant, you go to work Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, and you go home, and that's your job. But for, for first responders or firefighters, it, that's their identity. I mean, right? you know, you don't see accountants walking down the street with shirts that says, I'm an accountant. But, <laughs> you know, firefighters, you look in their top drawer, every T-shirt is firefighter this or, you know, what have you, tattoos. Yeah, I got a firefighter tattoo. Yeah. My shirts are, you know, right. it's just, it's, you know, it's your life. And when you take that away because of you lose that identity, you know, what do you have? Right. You, know, you feel so like, empty. Mm-hmm. What, and, and then also if you're getting sober, you feel like you lost that too, right? That's the anesthetic. Yeah. So you've lost your identity and your anesthetic. And so you just feel medicine. terrible. Yeah. 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 I mean, I understandably that sounds, sounds very painful. What are some of the things that you want to see? You know, it sounds to me like there's, you know, there's definitely some boots on the ground stuff that is going on. You know, obviously we're offering online intensive outpatient for first responders. You have this podcast. There's there's a magazine. There's all these. Um, I heard there's another program in Newport Beach that has an inpatient program, a simple recovery that has an inpatient program for first responders that's really cool. And they're starting a bunch of um, first responder 
support group meetings that aren't necessarily 12-step, but they're for first responders. And, you know, so there's a lot of stuff happening here, but it sounds like a big piece of this is is systemic, right? Is like from the top people feeling like, you know, it's when you said, well, they feel like once they feel that they can't handle it. My thought when you said that was it doesn't just because you find it upsetting that you see a mother kill her child in an accidental fire does not mean that you can't handle it. It means that it's you're alive and you're human. And to me, the ability, you know, not being able to handle it is is a function of of only being able to do the emotional work so that you are well and you can receive this information. It's not about it's not like you just need to fill up on bad, you know, seeing bad scenarios and that's handling it. And so I think what I'm hearing is kind of a conversation that needs to be had from the top down about what handling it looks like. Yeah. And it's not that, well, it's that, and it's, so the, re, in my in my opinion, the resources are there, you know, okay. for guys to get help, but nobody knows about it, you know, and That's then you interesting. have, okay. you know, so you have all these agencies and some do a very good job of like within the fire, like the firehouses involved mm-hmm. or, or offers them. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. So some departments do a really good job of helping their guys and, okay. and stuff like that, but then others, they don't do anything, you know, so there needs to be people to kind of take that bull by the horn on their own just because your department doesn't offer it doesn't mean you have to accept that you can do it yourself you can get online and look for resources and right. pin a couple phone numbers on the board or call places right. and stuff like that so there's no motivation there until they have four department suicides in six months right. and then now they want to you know yeah we have a problem now right you know, now well, yeah They've hit that threshold. I mean, mm-hmm. something, this is just me and being in my dreamland, but something that would be cool is having an openly sober fire chief, an openly sober, you know, heads of departments that say like, you know, this, I went through this, I, you know, I've had a wonderful career. I'm leading you guys. And in my firehouse, if you need help, you are welcome and you are still, you know, tough as nails. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah more people to be open and that goes in the, I think AA and, you know, kind of the mentality of maybe anonymous isn't, you know, always maybe should be a little bit more open yeah. about, you know, what, but What's... there's also, um, drawbacks to that because people still are very judgmental. And, of course, of course. And that's, that's where the stigma stuff comes in. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's those of us, you know, I, I feel that way too. Right. Cause my stuff is out there and I have little kids and, mm-hmm. You know, those of us who are trying to break that stigma have to step out into the light and say, look at us, we're functioning members of society and, you know, we're not bad people and we have to, you know, we're kind of stepping out and and putting ourselves in the spotlight, which is painful, but someone has to do it. We have to start, you know, and and there's no way it'll be mainstream if we don't force people to see that we can get better. Yeah. And, the, and, you know, the, we're in their communities, we're in your communities. Yeah. What are some of the, so um, we were just talking about different first responder categories. Can you go through what some of the first responder categories are? Because I was, I was really amazed at how many there are that it just didn't occur to me. The ones that I, so dispatchers, uh, correct, corrections officers, 
paramedics, EMTs, firefighters, police, some say nursing, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. professionals. Like emergency room professional. Yeah, or flight nurses, um, or flight medics. um, Mm, Yeah. I don't know that we, I have ever really categorized like the medical examiner in in with first responders, but that makes sense to me, you know, because they do, you know. They they, show up, yeah, this for this unit, yeah. Mm -hmm. But most of the medical examiners are police officers too, uh, you know, at cities. So they're usually in that category anyway. And that's probably about it. And veterans and and military, I usually consider uh, first responders. Right. Yeah. I mean, they've, there is a whole new space opening up around people who work at big tech companies, um, particularly some of the social media companies who are going through and censoring things that are coming out. I saw out an that, article on that, yeah. Yeah, and, and very, you know, I don't know, it felt like first, resp- like dispatcher-esque with visual yeah. in the sense that they were absorbing, you know, alarming, upsetting material in order to stop it from harming the public. And uh, I just thought that was an interesting well, I'm new... I'm sure they see all kinds of videos and... Oh, yeah. gosh. I, I mean, I read, I read too much. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I, like just reading. I mean, it was, and then talking about the people having the same, fe- you know, kind of feelings and and without the glory. I mean, without the glory of being a firefighter and the identity yeah. and and feeling a part of something. It was just a really interesting thing. How as we become more modern, what types of positions are having the same effect? Yeah. As some of these first responders, uh, they they say uh, like bank tellers too. Oh, uh, interesting. That yeah, have been in uh, robberies and stuff. Yeah, like that oh, have sure. Real big problems. Yeah, have you done any work with EMDR um, and your uh, firefighters? Yeah, that's all. I so anybody that calls the Institute for Responder Wellness, which is the uh, the board or the uh, nonprofit, I, I'm a board president. Uh, that's what we recommend. So we'll find them a local EMDR therapist if they, if they only need that. Yeah. Um, I get on the, the EMDR, EMDR DREA website and find them somebody. And you can search first responder under there under like specialties that yeah. The, yeah. the therapist does. And Got it. Now, whether they're really first responder yeah. qualified is another, you know, story. But, you know, I'll, I'll give them a couple off of there and I usually tell, recommend that. We started doing, Lion Rock started doing EMDR online through video conference, and I was the guinea pig to see if it even worked. And um, I used the experience. It was actually relatively recent. This happened with a neighbor baby that that did end up dying. And I used that experience with online doing the EMDR with an EMDR therapist. Now, EMDR had never worked for me for past traumas in person. Um, I had done tapping. I had done lights. I had done following finger. Um, it had never really worked. I don't know if I wasn't in the place or what, what it was, but this particular incident was you know, I lived next door to them. I couldn't move. And, you know, it was very traumatic. It really was. And, and I, my children were this, my twin boys were the same age as the baby that died. And uh, so, so I did it online and we, uh, the, there was, there's a program that does um, lights across the screen and I couldn't concentrate and I couldn't um, bring up emotions. So she, I said, you know, this isn't, I can't concentrate on the lights. So she had me do um, the tapping and it, 
was, I, I just say like, it was magic. It was magic. The intrusive thoughts went away. I'm able to walk by that house every day and not think about it. I used to like try to keep my kids quiet because I was afraid the neighbor was going to hear little kids and get triggered. And we have a pool. And so I was terrified about the pool and just like all this, so much dialogue that I didn't even realize lived in my head. And then, then I became scared that they were going to steal my kids to replace, you know, just all this like crazy stuff. It went away. It just went away. It was the wildest thing. I did one session. It was just one, one, one. And I think one of the things was that it was so present for me. It was so recent that I didn't have to work hard to pull the memory forward as opposed to other stuff. I'd done like childhood trauma and I was trying to pull memories. So all the times that you did the EMDR before, it wasn't for that. It was for no, other stuff. No, no, no. This was in sobriety. This was a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the other times I had done it was for childhood trauma gotcha. that they were trying to work on. And I was trying to like pull up emotion from years past that I don't think was super on the surface. And this yeah. was really on the surface for me. And I think that's why it worked so well. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. But, um, but it's, we've been having really amazing success with doing it online through video conference, which I was shocked and so happy about. Um, and I just, I love it. I think it's such a tool and it is um, just the, it's such a wild thing. Like why, you know, on the surface, <laughs> like why should that work? You know, yeah, but, well, anything that can right. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just, it seems so ridiculous how that could have yeah. that effect, but it's such a cool thing. And it's so helpful when you have trauma. Yeah. No, I think it'd be great for first responders. I think the online thing for first responders could really do well because I don't know how many times that I've taken calls, you know, off helplines where they just flat out refuse residents. Oh, yeah. Treatment. Yeah. Well, and, and the schedules are crazy. Yeah. The schedules, the schedules are, really are crazy. crazy. You know, I got one guy that I helped in in the Illinois, the, the treatment center that they refer everybody to is literally right next to the fire station, you know, yeah, exactly. the fire yeah. Yeah. Hey buddy, we'll see you when you come them. back. <laughs> that, yeah. So what are some of the common things that you hear from first responders reasons why they can't get, why they can't get help? Time, they don't want to take time off. They don't want the department to, to find out. Okay. They don't want know. them to find out. Just they can't miss work. That's usually okay. that. Or just they just don't need it. I don't need to go. You know. Then I why can, do they call the helpline? Exactly. You know, <laughs> they're, they're searching for some kind of answer, but right. you know, right. it, it's not the answer they want to hear. Right. Okay. Of course. Of course. Now, are many of them able to say, oh, I have, um, I have PTSD, but I, but the alcohol is not an issue. Well, that's a thing too. Many of them will admit PTSD or me- mental health issues, but you know, God forbid, it's hard. Yeah, 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 the drinking or you know, uh, taking the benzos at night to sleep every night. You know? Right. Do you think the sleep deprivation is, uh, or you know, the erratic schedules is? Oh uh, a- yeah, I I think I wrote articles on sleep deprivation and firefighters, yeah. and you know, we get done, you get done, you know, work, and then you go drink just to go to sleep. To go to sleep, right? Night. That's normal, you know. Right, right, because you know you're literally fighting against your your circadian rhythm. Are there wives who have secondary trauma from being married to first responders, mm-hmm. and how yeah. is that ever talked about? That uh, or and wives are usually wives are the or the I guess you could say spouses spouses are usually the ones that uh, it's mostly wives, but there are female firefighters, but uh, are a lot of the times the ones reaching out for help. Yeah, for their 
spouse because they notice all this stuff going on. Right. And they don't know what to do, you know. And I did it, you know. It usually takes longer working with them, too, because I, I worked with one wife for like nine months emailing yeah. every day for her police officer husband yeah. who would not go get treatment, you know, but every day trying to get her to yeah. do an intervention and stuff like that. And I went and did an intervention in Orlando with a cop one time with an interventionist and the wife had all of her bags packed and was, it was either go to treatment or she was leaving. And he wouldn't go. So we helped her pack her car. And she left. Wow. <laughs> right. And, you know, because he would not go to rehab. Yeah. You know, just, Do you they, think he would have gone to outpatient or online or it was just like, I don't have a problem? That, and that's the thing. If it was an online, something they could do at home in the privacy of yeah. their home, I think maybe it would be different. Yeah. Uh, two, I believe that if the departments got a little bit hard nosed on it, they could get them to go to treatment. Because they can get rid of the wives, the kids, the, the whatever, right, but, but you the threaten career. the job, you hang the job over them, they're going to go. Yeah. But they just don't do it. You know, yeah. I would sit with union guys, you know, a room full of union members that got a guy sitting there that needs to go to treatment because he's got an alcohol problem. And you tell them everything they need to do, he needs to go to rehab. Yeah. And he, the guy sits there and says, I'm not doing that. And they go along with it. Well, no, he just wants to do outpatient. Well, do you... Not, do you, up to him. do you think that part of that is that some of them probably it could be that it's relate. Just they they want to you know protect they just want to protect their own and, yeah. and you know and then six months later he's got a DUI and he lost his job right right because the fact of the matter is that the job is at risk even if the union mm-hmm. isn't saying so right exactly. like even if yeah. so yeah yeah I mean it's it's a it's an important space for us to be talking about because we as a society depend very heavily on these people and they make us feel safe, right? That there's someone we can call, you know, when you think about these huge disasters and you think that about how, oh, there's no one who's going to come and help, you know, we realize how important, how much we rely on this group of first responders to help us in our times of need and, you know, wanting to give that back is I think really important. So, it's you're, the work you're doing is amazing, and we're super excited to have play a small, you know, role in that and be able to help first responders and give back, you know, what they've given to us in spades. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and then we had the also doing the free uh, help. Right, will you tell us too. a little bit about that? So it's every Thursday night, and it's online uh, through LineRockRecovery.com under support groups. And you don't even have to be in the intensive outpatient. Anybody can go check that out. And it's just a support group for first responders that are in recovery or might need recovery or think they're having a problem or just want to check it out. Yeah. You know, there's the only rule is you got to be a first responder. Right. Uh, and it's right. I've been going pretty well. I think the most we had was like 11 or 12. And I think we're hovering around seven or eight now. But, you know, I think it's because it's the end of the summer. People. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I think it's going to pick back up again once we hit school in September and all. And that's a thin line recovery um, yeah. on on the okay. So that's a free support group for first responders. Thin line recovery, linerockrecovery.com, and then you go to the support groups tab and find thin line recovery under Thursday. Under Thursday, okay. Mm-hmm. And um, where can they find you know if they just find Mark Lamplew if they look you up on LinkedIn or some of the the. Um, yeah, LinkedIn, it's just Mark Lamplew, Facebook, Mark Lamplew. Uh, Twitter is uh, ResponderTX. Instagram is Firefighter Wellness Radio. And then uh, you can just 
Google Mark Lamplow and all this stuff. And find you off all your yeah. stuff. Okay, cool. Cool. Well, we'll put links to that in the uh, in the show notes and um, so that, you know, pe- first responders who are just, you know, sometimes people want to look around and read all the stuff before they contact anyone. So we'll put all that stuff in there so that people can connect and, you know, we'll just keep talking about it and hope that more and more people in the system starts to be more aware and be more proactive in this area. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. We really appreciate you and your expertise and all the hard work you're doing in the first responder space. Thank you. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 